And it's always helpful to have your Bibles open, or if you don't have one, to just have one of the one of the blue ones in front of you to follow along. Because so much of what we're saying is just following these verses. And then we're going to re- make a reference to Daniel chapter four. So Daniel, you go to the end of Ezekiel, you get to Daniel, Daniel chapter four, seven forty one. If you're using the pew Bible. The uh, content of what I'm going to say is, it's just, you have to listen carefully. Um, So I'm not saying next week you don't have to listen carefully. Um, But just some of of this content, you want to listen carefully, you want to take some notes, and then you really need to process it with somebody. It's you can get lost in your own head or or it's just not helpful so you just need to if you have a spouse or you have a child or you have a friend whatever the case may be uh, and then after the sermon's over after the service is over I'll be up here with another elder if something God stirs something you would you think it would be helpful for somebody to pray with you about we'd be happy to do that so let's look together I'm going to begin with uh, Matthew chapter 4 Verse 20, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is the very end of the Sermon of the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine... And does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall. Romans chapter 1 beginning with verse 19 to the end of the chapter 18 and the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, 
disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word, and then we'll think through it together. begun getting towards the Sermon on the Mount, my, the picture I've had in my head is the pole vaulter. So the pole vaulter sticks the pole in the plant stand, and then he tries to go 15 or 20 feet in the air. But you know, and I know, that you can't just stand there and stick the pole in the ground and hope to go up. You've got to have a run-up. And so the, this series of sermons here, the last few weeks and the next week or two, is, is just this run-up. There are some things that you have to have sort of solidified in your mind, they're, they're the strides we're taking so that when you plant yourself in the Sermon on the Mount, you're, you really are moving in the right direction. In this particular sermon, you have to really have a correct diagnosis of your own heart before you can really see what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's really my focus for today, is trying to help us understand how we often think and the, the, the term that I'm using and asking you to think through last week, this week, and really for the whole series is, is what's the primary or dominating narrative that goes through your mind? What's the story you tell? What's the, the phrases you use? What are the truths that are in your brain that just run around like a, on a track that constantly cause you to act and react certain ways? Well, in my preparation for this series, I read a book by James Smith. It's got a great title, and you've heard me use it before. It's called The Good and Beautiful Life, Putting on the Character of Christ. So how do you become an apprentice of Jesus? How do you become somebody who looks and talks and follows after Jesus? How do you, how do you know how to live? We need a master teacher, and Jesus does that for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to talk about how he thinks through this particular passage in Romans from his first chapter. He, he begins his chapter in the book by recalling uh, a chaplaincy that he had as an er, early in his ministry at a retirement center. And he met a particular uh, older gentleman named Ben Jacobs. And Ben Jacobs was an elderly man who always sat in his room in a rocking chair and looked out the window he, he wore a blue cardigan sweater and had a button-down shirt underneath. He had a well-trimmed beard. He had a very serious look. He, he looked like he was somebody important. You know, when you came into the room, you thought, well, this guy, he, he was somebody important one day. He was sophisticated. And, and he liked to debate. So he liked when the chaplain came by because he could talk to him and debate with him. 
And after about a week of meetings, uh, James Smith realizes why Ben Jacobs wants him to come by as the chaplain. And that was because Ben wanted to confess having lived a bad life. Here's this old man who's limited to a rocking chair and a trimmed beard. And he felt the need to confess to somebody, and, and James was the person who was the chaplain. Here's Ben in his own words. I was born in 1910. I made my first million when I was in, in 1935, so at the age of 25. At age 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friends. I lied, I cheated, I stole. My life narrative was simple. Take all you can, amass wealth and power. See, that's my narrative. That's how I'm thinking I'm supposed to live my life, Ben Jacob is saying. I had 2,000 employees. I had three different wives. All my wives left me because of neglect or affairs. I have one daughter in her 40s, but she refuses to speak to me now. Now listen to what Ben Jacob says about himself. I suppose you could say I ruined my life. Oh, I still have a lot of money, but I sit here each day waiting to die. I cared about no one, so now no one cares about me. Young man, you're all I have. Now then, James Smith has this conclusion in his book. Ben wanted to be happy. He, he, he never set out to live a sad, joyless life. Ben did not wake up and decide, I think I will make a series of selfish decisions and attempt to ruin my life. No. Ben thought he was pursuing happiness. Ben's problem is he adopted a set of ideas about what success and happiness are, and they were all wrong. All of his narratives, he thought, if I do this, this is going to terminate on happiness. But they were all pointing in the wrong direction. He was like the pole vaulter, and he's running away. And when he planted himself, he realized it's just air in the end. He simply obeyed a false narrative about what constitutes a good and happy life. And that narrative dominated his life. Few people end up in situations like Ben's all at once. It takes a long time to ruin a life. Well, having read Matthew chapter 7, we would diagnose from the Bible that Ben built his house on the sand. And here as an old man, it's all coming crashing down. And one key question that I'm going to keep asking, I've already asked here, is just what is that narrative that you play? See, you're running down some kind of track. Maybe you're, you're planting uh, your hope on someone, something. You're thinking, this is the thing. If, if I really hit this, it's gonna, I'm going to lift off. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to get over the bar, whatever that is for you. What is that for you? What, what dictates your behavior? What justifies the outcomes? Following the story about Ben Jacobs, then... James Smith, the writer of the book, does a great job of detailing or uh, uh, unpacking Romans chapter 1, which we read here. And I was haunted by the title, used it for the title of the sermon, How to Ruin Your Life Without Even Trying. 
So he looks at Ben Jacobs and said, he just had a false narrative. And, and, and what Ben determined here as an old man, I've, I, guess you, I guess you could say, I've ruined my own life. So how, how do you ruin a life without even trying? And the Apostle Paul just talks about the six steps of ruining your life. And that's what I want to spend most of our time on here. Here are the six steps. They're all here in this passage in Romans First step, verse 21, is turning away. For although they or we knew God, we didn't honor God or as God or give him thanks, but we became futile in our thinking and foolish in our hearts. We turned away from God. This is what I talked about last week. This is the glory war. You're going to give your glory to something. You're going to give your weight to something uh, it's not a matter of if you're going to do that. It's a matter of the object of what you're going to give that to. And we're all in this glory war. And the Bible says we've all turned away from God. We've exchanged the glory of God. And we've given it to, to the glory of something that's been created. It could be ourselves. could be another thing. could be an object, whatever that may be. It's a, it's a fatal first step. It, it, it's It's... It's a turning away, as James Smith says, it's turning away from reality. I, I want to say that so clearly. When you are not following after the God of the Bible, you are not in reality anymore. You are running down a track that if you plant your pole in whatever you hope it is, you're just going to go out into space. It's not reality. And Jesus is trying in the Sermon on the Mount to say, this is reality. But we've turned away. We, we, we're running in the wrong direction. We've, we've stepped away from reality. And that might be some of you here. You really don't live in reality. You think you do. It feels like reality. You think if this thing happens or I get this, then it's going to really be it. But it never is. It's like the mirage. As soon as you arrive, it's just a little bit further away now. So the first fatal step is the turning away. Then notice in the same verse, the mind goes dark. We become futile in our thinking. I like the way it really is in the Greek, vain imaginations. See, see, I have imaginations in my head, but they're empty, they're unproductive, they're useless. They're vain. I think, gosh, here's what I think. I hold it in my head and think, if I could just do this or feel this or get this, then that would be it. And it's a vain imagination. It's a vapor. God created human beings with minds to, to reason, to imagine, to speculate, to think, to ponder, to meditate. So that we might know God. So that we might honor him. But we've stepped away from reality. Our minds have gone dark. And so we focus and honor on our honor on other things. And usually the other thing is you. Most often the thing that you wrap your life around in your mind has to do with self-comfort or self-centeredness. Now, this is where I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 4 because you get a little picture of it from a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Uh, Daniel was a prophet in um, Babylon, and the person that was reigning over him was what the world would have said was a great king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to read through uh, verse 29 for you. Chapter 4, verse 29 says this. At the end of 12 months, he, or Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, here is a guy who's self-deluded. Here is a man who has left reality. He's built some sort of palace or some sort of kingdom. He's standing there and he's just saying, look how great I am. All this is about me. Verse 31, terrifying. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, his kingdom will endure forever. God's kingdom endures forever, not man's. No matter how brash you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much power you have, your kingdom, tiny So tiny. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar became an animal. Imagine that. Nebuchadnezzar is restored, verse 34. And listen how he's restored. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? I lifted my eyes to heaven. I entered into reality. See, my eyes were completely focused on me and my little kingdom. And what got me out of that darkness was focusing my eyes on God. I entered into reality. I I realized who God is. And my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. See, I, I was meant to use my mind and all of my talents to bless God and to praise Him and honor Him who lives forever and ever. What a vivid picture. And our foolish hearts were darkened. So when we turn away, what happens is our mind goes dark. And it happens in this way. We become futile in our thinking and then our minds go dark. You might remember John eight twelve, Jesus saying this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have eternal life. And listen, again, listen to Jesus' assessment. If you're not following Jesus, if you're living by a different narrative, you are living in darkness. Everyone who's not following the Jesus narrative is living in darkness. There's not another option. There are no other lights. And it's so important for us to understand this from our culture because Jesus is clearly saying light emanates from Jesus, I am the light. All light comes out of me. How do you get out of the darkness? From Jesus. You never get out of the darkness by looking at your own heart and mind. Please hear that. 
You are never going to get out of your dark reality by searching your heart, by following your heart, by searching your mind. Light comes from the outside in. And that light has a single originating point, and that person is Jesus. And he's trying to say, this is reality. Walk in this way. There are all kinds of competitors, but it's all darkness. It's all empty, and you can ruin your life without even trying by just following one of those. The downward spiral, verse 21, where futile... In our minds, verse 28, we have a debased mind. And then verse 32, very sad ending. We have an approving mind. We approve people who behave this way in the darkness. Step number three. Idolatry, verse 23. Most of you are familiar with this very popular phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. You know that phrase? A lot of times it's used in leadership kind of thing. So if you take a leader out, people jump into that vacuum. And it's just like nature. The, the, the way that it's put is if, if you take something out of nature, the surrounding material get, gets into that empty spot. It just can't take a vacuum. The human heart can't take a vacuum. There is a place for God in every human heart. And when he gets displaced, it's just not empty. All the surrounding material fight for that space. And that's exactly what's happening. There are different idols that we put into that space in that God-shaped vacuum saying, if I could have this, I don't have God, but if I have this, then this is going to make me happy. It's a, it's a false narrative. And again, worship isn't optional. What's optional is the object of your worship. Every human being was made to worship. It's not a question if you're going to worship. It's a question of the object. Here's how Tim Keller describes idolatry. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness. You got one of those? You got a hundred of those? Then it becomes something you're actually worshiping. When such a thing is, is threatened, here's a good gauge of whether you have an object. When it's threatened, you get angry. Anger is such an excellent gauge. It's not 100% foolproof, but when you get angry because something doesn't go your way, you probably have an idol. Your anger is actually a way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Keller goes on. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive your, forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is the idol I cannot live without? Step three, idolatry. Step four, tearing, terrifying verse. Verse 24, God leaves us alone. Therefore, God gave them up. We're like a kite. We're tethered to the light of the world. We're tethered to reality. But we keep saying, if I could just get rid of this stupid string, then I could really fly. It's holding me back, not holding me up. 
So we reach out and cut the string, and what happens? We end up in this death spiral that Paul's talking about. We're, we're, we're cut off from God. We're cut off from light. And, and we get on this wide road of ruining our lives. And what happens when a human being or humanity is left, cut out from God? Step five, pleasure is the substitute, and it's pursued at all cost. Smith, James Smith, has this observation. Disconnected from reality and on our own, we must find fulfillment. The easiest route is through our bodies. Lust and gluttony are shortcuts to happiness. I cannot find happiness, so I have to have a shortcut. I've got to have something that instantaneously fills this vacuum in my heart. And so what starts in the heart begins to spill out and it becomes the dishonoring to the Bible, uh, to the body. And the Bible couldn't be any more clear. Every human being cut off from God is on auto-destruct. You're on the road to what Ben Jacobs is saying is to say, I guess I've ruined my own life. Now, if you're confused by what Paul is saying or you don't understand it, then just go back to Matthew chapter 7 and that Jesus gives you the picture book. If you don't like all this vocabulary, it's just two pictures, two houses. One built on the sand, one built on the rock. We live in the, near the ocean, we understand. Houses built on the sand near the ocean don't last. They may look sturdy, but the erosion is going to happen and they're going to come crashing down. That's, that's the two options that Jesus is setting up for us here. And finally, this final step, verses 28 through 32, sin then dominates or reigns. See this word in verse 29, filled. Our, our hearts become filled and then you notice all the words back behind that, 21 containers. We, we, we separate ourselves from God, and, and what happens is 21 containers. I mean, a, a train gets coming into that void with 21 containers. Foolishness, faithfulness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, boastfulness, haters, slanders, deceit, malicious, murder, envy, strife. It's just one container after another fills up this empty space in our heart. I'm flipping through the channels, and I think I've used this illustration before, but this one particular guy just caught my attention. You've seen a commercial, I hope, not a whole show, of this show called Hoarders. So these people who really have a terrible life can't throw anything away. And I'm watching this one particular guy. He doesn't even live in his house any longer. He has so much stuff, he's removed himself from the house. It's just like sin. You fill your life up with containers, you lose yourself. You can't live in yourself anymore. You don't know who you are anymore. You've been evicted. And what's come in is just hate and malice and lust and one container after another. It fills up every human heart. And the problem is, is we're blind to it. See, we're, we're in the dark 
And we don't know that's even happening. That's one of the difficulties in preaching is people sitting here saying, I pretty, pretty much feel fulfilled by these things. And, and they're on their way to Ben Jacob's. We adopt a false narrative about what success and happiness are, and that narrative dominates our life, and we begin to ruin our life without even trying. Now, it's critical as we go towards the Sermon on the Mount that you understand this diagnosis of the human heart. Said this, this illustration, but it's so perfect. Patrick Lawler, I think is his name. Patrick Lawler, he's a construction worker who had a toothache. Remember the story? He's working out in Colorado. He's working at a ski resort. He's working in the springtime, you know, fixing things up. And he's got this pneumatic gun, this air gun. And he knows the next day he's got some toothache. And so he thinks aspirin and ice cream, that helps every toothache. That, actually, that helps a lot of things, I've noticed. Aspirin and ice cream help quite a few conditions. And so he's got this aspirin and ice cream, but toothache just never goes away. So he's like, I guess I got, you know, some decay or something. So he goes to the dentist. Dentist says, hey, it's not a problem with your tooth. you got a nail in your head. And the gun had shot two nails back. One hit a, a piece of board behind him, and another went through the soft part of his mouth. He didn't even notice it. And he's sitting there, he's got a nail in his head, and he thinks a little bit more ice cream is going to help me. But see, don't you understand, that's how so many people live their lives. I've got a problem, it never quite goes away, but I don't think it's really that serious. So if I just get some ice cream, it'll go, it doesn't go away. Why? You have a nail in your head. You have a hole in your heart, and you can reach for any container that the world offers. It's never going to fit. It's never going to last. And Jesus is coming to say, there's a good and beautiful life for every human being. It's my way. Light comes from the outside in, shines on the darkness of your life, and tells you this is the way you're supposed to live. And so that's our hope. That something has happened from the outside because it's never going to come from within. And that's exactly what Paul says before verse 18. What does he say? Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power to bring people out of the darkness and into the light. For the righteousness of God was revealed from faith to faith, so that it is the righteous shall live by faith. A righteousness has come from the outside into me. And that person, that righteousness is Jesus. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount offers a counter narrative. And he says, if, if you want to be a person at the end of your life, not like Ben Jacobs, but you want to be a person who's built your life on the rock, then then listen carefully to what Jesus has to say. So I want you to listen carefully. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount or anywhere else, he's not making life more difficult. See, this is a, this is a false narrative that the enemy has been so effective in wielding. 
Jesus, following after Jesus, isn't making life more difficult. He's actually delivering a sermon on how to live a good and beautiful life. But what we've come to believe is if I follow after that, then the cost of discipleship is so high. It's so terrible. Who could do it? That's the opposite of what's true. The terrible life, the way to ruin your life is doing what Jesus is the opposite of what Jesus would want you to do. Doing what Jesus wants you to do is the way to a good and beautiful life. So we cannot believe that false narrative. And you can expect, I want you to anticipate, that if you are currently living by a false narrative that's wrapped around anger, lust, lying, hypocrisy, revenge, popularity, material wealth, anxiety, or judging, then prepare to be confronted by Jesus. If any of those things make up a false narrative... Prepare to be confronted by Jesus who loves you graciously and is calling you out of that darkness. Calling you out of that container that's a prison. Calling you out of having ruined your own life. I need you to ask yourself what's the narrative? Now, this is where you really have to have the help of other people. And if you you say, I just don't know, then I would start by looking at cracks. You know how this works? You have a crack in your house, and somebody says, just paint over it. And that's what I do. (laughs) But if you're smart, what does the crack tell you? you got a shifting foundation. So we need to follow the crack back down to what's causing the foundation. So if you have problems with anger, lust, lying, anxiety, pride, materialism, if you have certain phrases or words that define who you are, then these are all cracks that help you point to a foundational problem. And you may say, Paul, I don't really want to uncover my foundation. I don't really have any desire to follow my crack down to the foundation. I'm just spending my life covering up over the cracks of my life. I want you to hear me say, do not be afraid. Because the one who has already died for you, he knows it. He's not waiting for you to shape up to die for you. He has died for you in your current condition. And he already knows it. And he, the one who is perfect, who can love and accept you, then you can get down to the foundation. Because you can trust that he's leading you to a good and beautiful life. Now, after the service, I'll be here. Somebody... Just might need somebody to pray for them. And I would be happy to do that or another elder. But let's all pray together. Lord, we... um, Maybe I should just say I... I don't like going to the doctor. Because they point out things that I'm trying to paper over. And your, your text here from Romans, like a, a surgeon's knife, 
that cuts open our heart. It, 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 it pours light into dark places, and it's the only way out. We, otherwise, we live in a nail, with a nail in our head. And so I'm praying just for divine intervention here with these people that you would help uh, point them to what the false narrative is that dominates their life. What are the containers that they're stuffing this emptiness in their soul with? And, And can you help us see it and then help us to move towards the light that comes from you? And then to to live a good and beautiful life. Would you rescue any soul here today who is ruining their life and they don't even know it? That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.